find the Gospel of John in your copy of the Scripture. I do want to ask you to find a copy of the Scripture if, if it's uh, even the one in the pew rack in front of you. Or some of you will turn on your Scripture. Instead of open it, you'll turn it on in your mobile device. By the way, make sure, though, that those mobile devices are silenced. But uh, many people now read the Scripture that way. So... Uh, John chapter 13, I want to do something this morning a little bit different as we go into the time of the Lord's Supper. Oftentimes when we talk about the Lord's Supper, I will preach a message on the cross. Some singular passage that has to do with the cross. This morning I'm not going to do that, I'm going to take a different approach. We're going to look at John chapter 13. John chapter 14, John chapter 15, John chapter 16, and John chapter 17, okay? The reason I want to do that is because these chapters provide for us the context of the Lord's Supper. These chapters give us a glimpse inside of the upper room. The Lord's Supper, where he instituted that supper, Jesus was with his disciples. And the synoptic gospel, synoptic meaning similar, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell us that Jesus and his disciples have just celebrated together a Passover meal. But we rely on John's gospel to tell us a lot about the conversations that took place in the upper room. These chapters provide us with a window inside into Jesus' teaching of his disciples. What he wanted them to know before he was to leave them. Very important chapters. Now, we know that leading into the upper room, by the way, Connie and I have had the privilege of standing in that upper room, the traditional site. But chapter 12 is the close of Jesus' public ministry. And chapter 12 closes with one more passionate appeal that Jesus gives to the multitude that they would believe. That they would come to him and believe. And then in chapter 13, he goes into that teaching in the upper room. And I want to read chapter 13 to you. Notice what he says there. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Don't you love that phrase? He loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not now understand, but you will know know after this. 
Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Characteristic Simon Peter, right? Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him, therefore he said, you are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I've done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now folks, I want you to think about the power and the significance of this passage, what we're being told here. It was customary when they would enter into a home, it was very customary that a lowly servant would be there to wash the feet of those who were gathering in that home. And and if a household had more than one servant, that task would go to the lowliest servant of all. And we're told that some Jews did not believe that another Jew should have to fulfill that task to wash the feet of another Jew. That that ought to be the task of a Gentile. D.A. Carson in his outstanding commentary on the book of John tells an instance where a well-known rabbi came home to visit his mom and dad after doing his service at the temple and being out around town and that rabbi walked into his parents' home and his mother wanted to wash his feet and he refused. She took him to court. An actual occurrence that we know about in history. But the point is, they did not believe that a Jew should have to wash the feet of another Jew. So imagine this. Jesus taking off his outer garment, taking a towel and a basin of water and doing that for the disciples. They should have done it for him, but he did it for them. And at this point, even Judas is there. Imagine that. Jesus said at the the close of this passage, he said, I've given you an example that you should do as I've done to you. You know, Paul picking up on this theme of servanthood over in Philippians 2. Let me invite you to turn to Philippians 2 with me for a moment. Because in Philippians 2, Paul says to the church there, uh, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2, Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy... Now, by saying if, he's not questioning that these things exist. They do. 
But he goes on in verse, in verse 2 to say, If these things exist in your assembly, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Notice he says there, don't esteem one another equal to you, esteem other people above you. Let each of you look out not for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. And then in verse 5, he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. What he's doing here is giving Jesus Christ as the ultimate example of the principles that he's just laid down in the first four verses of chapter 2. He's just told them, be of one mind, serve one another. Don't look out for your own interest. Look out for the interest of others. Put others first. And so beginning in verse 5, what's he do? He gives Jesus Christ as the ultimate example of someone who's done that. The Lord of glory, the Savior, the Messiah has looked after us and our interest. Amen? Back to Jesus' words in John chapter 13. He points out that we are to serve one another and we will be blessed by doing so. Then in chapter 14, Not only does Jesus give them a word about serving that he's just done in chapter 13, but in chapter 14 he gives them a word of comfort and hope. He's just told them that he's about to die and one of them's about to betray him and another one's going to deny him. They're troubled men. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you and if I go and prepare a place for you I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also and where I go you know and the way you know Thomas said to him Lord we do not know where you're going and how can we know the way Jesus said to him I am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the Father except through me he invites them to put the same trust in him that they would put in God How can a man say that? Because in addition to being a fully man, he was also fully God, the second person of the Trinity. He's saying, guys, don't worry. Don't worry. All of this is taken care of. Believe in me. Just as you believe in God, believe in me. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And because I'm doing that, I'm going to come back and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. And he goes on in chapter 14 and also over in chapter 16 to say, 
And you know what? I'm not going to leave you alone. You will not see me in the flesh much longer, but I'm not going to leave you alone because I'm going to send another, the Holy Spirit, and he'll be with you always, even to the end of the age, and he will teach you and comfort you and help you, give you strength, and he will show you everything that you need to do in order to follow me. The ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's going to convict the world of sin and of judgment. And he's going to be with the believer giving strength and comfort and instruction to the believer. So guys, one day you're going to be with me, but I'm not leaving you alone until then. And so you need to be comforted. And you need to simply trust me and follow me. Even though you can't see me with your eyes, I'll be with you. Chapter, seven, uh, chapter 16, the key to it all will be what? That they abide in him as they wait on his return or as they wait for him to, to take us to glory. What are they to be doing in the meantime? What are you and I to be doing in the meantime? He says, you are to abide in me. Ten times in 11 verses, he says, abide in me. Abide in me, abide in me, abide in me, abide in me, abide in me. Now, parents, if you say to your children something ten times, do you mean it? You do, don't you? It's like you're saying to your child, hey, listen, this is important. This is important. Ten times, abide in me, and I in you. As you wait on me, he's saying, don't forget about your relationship to me. As you do ministry, don't forget about your relationship to me. Your relationship to me is going to govern it all. Abide in me. And then he goes on in chapter 15 to say you need to love one another. He's just said that in chapter 13. Love one another. All the world will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And he repeats to them in chapter 15 what their relationship needs to be with each other. It needs to be characterized by love. He goes on in that chapter to say the world's not going to love you. In fact, the world is going to hate you because you belong to me. Church, The world is not going to love us. We need to understand that. Sometimes, you know, we want everybody to like us. We want everybody to love us. Christians don't like opposition. But Jesus is saying to us here, the world is going to oppose you. Because the world follows the one who is its father, Satan, the father of lies. But you follow me, so the world's going to hate you. And you need to get that in your mind and just realize that it's going to be so. So when it happens, you won't be surprised. He said, the servant is not greater than the master. Look at what the world did to Jesus. They crucified him. Chapter 16. He gets back into talking once again about the role of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit as he comforts them and teaches them. 
in chapter 17, he gives a prayer to the Father. And so, notice what he's doing here. Three main things that are happening. A word about serving is first. A a word of instruction is second, about the Holy Spirit's work and abiding in him. And then thirdly, a prayer to the Father. And in that prayer, notice what he says uh, there in verse uh, 1. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. In verse 4, he says, I've glorified you on the earth. I finished the work which you gave me to do. In verse 6, he says, they were yours. You gave them to me, and they've kept your word. In verse 9, he says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. In verse 11 he says, now I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them through your name, those who you've given to me, that they may be one as we are one. Folks, think of the communion in the Godhead between Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Think of that communion. Think of that oneness. Everything about the Trinity, a perfect oneness with what God does. And he says, Father, help my disciples to be one, even as we are one. Verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Verse 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And then again in verse 21, that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Just like at the end of chapter 13. Love one another that the world will know that you are my disciples. Folks, Jesus is saying that the world is supposed to see something different among us. How we treat one another. The way we treat one another in the body of Christ is to be a message to the world that we are in him. That he's done a work of grace in us. Why? Because the world is so divided and the world hates one another. But the church is to be a little pocket in the world we come to for mutual prayer and encouragement and where we love one one another, encourage one another, build one another up. There's something that is to be different here than you would find in the world. Amen? And then in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you've given me. That we would see his glory which he has with the Father before the world began. Folks, these chapters, again, chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, chapters of a private conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. That because he inspired scripture, John wrote these words down, you and I have the opportunity 
of having a little window into that upper room that Jesus had with his disciples before he left them. Powerful chapters. Amazing chapters. I'm glad we have these chapters in the Gospel of John. John. 